From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. People who've had a stroke are at an increased risk for having another stroke. In medical terms, it's known as secondary stroke. Here to discuss this with us is nurse practitioner Stephanie Loveless from Upstate's stroke team. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So one of the major risk factors for stroke is having had a previous stroke. Um, Why is that? Um, When we talk about stroke and stroke prevention, um, there are risk factors that are related to a patient being at risk for a stroke. The first one being um, an elevation of blood pressure. Secondarily, um, if you're a diabetic, have high cholesterol and or smoke. So there are various um, risk factors that we all can carry with us, um, some more than others, um, that lead us to being predisposed. And if you've already had a stroke, you probably have some of those factors Correct. too, right? A lot of times we see our patients in the hospital setting, they do have, um, even if it's a blip or an isolated episode of high blood pressure, um, they, they're not aware that their LDL, which is a cholesterol factor in the whole LDL uh, lipid panel that we draw at the hospital, was elevated. Um, we have stricter, stricter um, guidelines for the patients once they've had the stroke. 40% of our TIAs or transient ischemic attack patients go on to have a stroke. Um, I see some patients in clinic who go on to tell me that they didn't even realize that they had a stroke. So we huh. do a lot of education well, now, I, I understand there's two, basically sort of two types of strokes, the, the kind where the blood vessel is blocked by like a clot. Correct. Or the kind where the blood vessel bursts and it's a bleed. Um, is this the case for both types of strokes, that if you've had one, you're at risk equally Not for necessarily. When we see patients in the, the stroke clinic and in the hospital, 85% of the strokes we see are called embolic strokes or the strokes the that you referred to of the clot, yes. Okay. And only 15% are hemorrhagic or bleeds. A lot of our hemorrhagic strokes are related to high, high blood pressure, meaning 180 over 100, 200. Okay. We've seen blood pressures in the 220s over 120. So those kind of constitute and can drive a hemorrhagic stroke as opposed to an ischemic stroke. And are secondary strokes necessarily more dangerous than a first-time stroke? Not necessarily a stroke, regardless of the first or the second or the tertiary um, is your brain under attack. It is an emergency. And a lot of times patients will say, well, I don't even have symptoms of the stroke that you're telling me that I had. But based on the symptoms that they presented to the emergency room with in collaboration and correlation to the MRIs that are done will tell us that they did have a stroke. And thankfully, they don't have disabling effects from that particular stroke that they've incurred. Secondary time around The strokes don't always happen in the same location as the previous stroke, and they may end up with lasting disabilities. Okay. Now, you mentioned the term trans-ischemic attacks. That's a a small stroke, right? It's It's not a small stroke. It's symptomatology that may mimic a stroke or give us a precursor to a stroke, um, may occurring down the line with the particular patient, given the symptomatology and their secondary stroke So that is a, a, a risk. It's that, a warning okay. sign, yes. All right. Well, if someone has that, um, those warning signs, what can they do to reduce their risk of a secondary stroke? Are there things, 
Are, yeah. are there medicines to take? Um, there are. Uh, when we see patients for stroke in hospital, when we get ready to discharge them, we see them in our stroke clinic three months after the fact, and we talk about where their goal blood pressure should be. Ideally, JNCA kind of changes where blood pressure parameters should be. Right now, we're striving for our stroke patients to have a systolic number less than 130, bottom number less than 90. Um, if they're diabetic, we want their hemoglobin A1C, which is a three-month average of what their blood sugar runs, to be less than 7.0. We'll see patients with hemoglobin A1Cs up in the 9s to 11s, which does affect the blood vessels because they are fragile in the base of our brain. So it sounds like basically they have to get all of those risk factors as best they can under control. Optimizing your secondary stroke risk factors is the goal and ideally how we're going to prevent additional strokes from happening. There are medications that we do typically put the patients on. We put them on um, an antiplatelet, which is either an aspirin or a clopidogrel, which is Plavix. Um, and, you know, every day that goes by, research is changing and growing as far as there's now lab testing for us to be able to look at values to see if patients are responders to those particular medications. So it's exciting times for stroke because we are able to do a lot more for our patients. If their LDLs are elevated greater than 70 after having a stroke, they typically go on a torvastatin. You will hear patients say that, you know, I can't take a statin, I have muscle pain. And, and there is legitimate cases out there where they just don't tolerate those statins. Um, there's alternatives to statins that you could discuss with the provider that is working with you. There are... Um, other statins different from a torvastatin that we use, so there are options, but um, it's always important to keep a statin within the bloodstream as long as it's monitored. Now, what about like lifestyle and diet? Do do you get into? Are there a lot of changes that people have? We to... do, um, depending upon the provider we work with um, collaboratively. Some go by the Dash diet; it's the diet aimed at stopping hypertension. And we do um, provide them the American Heart Association papers that kind of give them a serving size and things to kind of shoot for to watch, limiting their salt intake. If you're diabetic, um, low sugar diets. So the other a diet that we do look at is, is the Mediterranean diet. That's uh, back over over in Greece there, the, the olives and the olive oils and the vegetables are more more plant-based um, diets versus the animal proteins that we consume uh, with lots of red meat because it's not necessarily the um, the red meat itself. It's the protein and the hemoglobin that's in the meat that irritates the vessels ah. in the patients. Okay. So there's some things that a patient will probably have to do to sort of change yes. how they're living. Yes, they have to take accountability. Um, I think another... Um, secondary stroke risk factor that we didn't discuss is smoking. Smoking is a big one that um, the vessels don't like anything irritating, and whether it be a plaque from a high LDL or a clot from atrial fibrillation of the heart to um, smoking and inhaling all of the carcinogens that come along with it. Um, that's another really um, important risk factor that we can and have control over and changing in our lifestyles. Oh, good to know. Let me remind listeners, this is, uh, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. My guest is nurse practitioner Stephanie Loveless, and she's talking about secondary strokes. Um, I wanted to ask you, what do you say to patients who feel sort of overwhelmed um, 
maybe they have multiple risk factors. It's got to be hard to like manage all of this stuff um, all at once. So how do you? We take it one step at a time. And, you know, none of us are perfect. We all have things that we can work on within ourselves. But, you know, you, you, you do have the unfortunate label of saying that you've had a stroke, but that doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to have another one. You do the best that you can to prevent that secondary stroke. And by doing that, you know, if you can focus on one thing, work on getting your blood pressure to goal range take a a true hard fast look a lot of times we'll send our patients home with automatic blood pressure cuff scripts so they can take their blood pressure once in the morning when they get up and then maybe once during the course of the day if their day permits give that to your primary care and see if you do qualify for a blood pressure medication or if you need a different blood pressure medication baby steps I mean we all have different things going on comorbidities we may not even know about yet but if you can take one step and then in a month from then, build on that. Build on, you've got a good control of your blood pressure. Now you're borderline diabetic. So really try to get out there and, and take a, a walk every day. Start by walking to your mailbox and back if that's all you can do. And then extend the time and extend the distance as you can. So even if you're um, actively doing taking steps to reduce the risk factor, I imagine it can be sort of anxiety-provoking to have I don't know, the threat of a stroke hanging over you. And I guess everyone has a threat of a stroke. It could happen to any of us. But if it's happened to you already, you sort of know what it could happen. Um, Do you you ever deal with, like, anxieties? Always. Anxiety and depression is another piece that we're really looking to bridge over and, and have additional conversations about. But certainly patients will come in and say, what's my chance of having another one? And, And certainly it's on an individual basis, and it just all depends on what your risk factors are, where the territory involved was, and whether it could happen again. But we tell them, you know, if you can live your life, you live it within the reason that you can, understanding the things that you do have control over and taking care. A lot of times the patients will say, well, I have to travel or I have to do this. Common sense things, you know. Make sure if you're taking a long-distance drive to visit the grandkids that you're getting out every hour or two stretching your legs, taking a little bit of a walk. On these hot, humid days, as we're all seeing now with state fair time, make sure that you're hydrating, you know, the common sense things. but Sort of adapting. Adapting, exactly. Well, I want to ask you about the signs and symptoms of stroke, but before we get into those details, a person who has experienced a stroke and the signs and symptoms of one stroke, would they necessarily be the same signs and symptoms the second time? No, and that's a good question. A lot of patients will tell us, well, so if this happens, then I should do it. Well, yes, keep that in mind. But having keeping that in mind, you have to kind of take a look at the whole picture of all the signs and symptoms. Because depending upon the area of involvement will determine whether you end up with disabilities or not. Patients will say to me in clinic, well, you told me I had to come to the stroke clinic follow-up appointment. I'm here. But I don't feel bad. I don't know that I had a stroke. And thankfully, they didn't have any debilitating or disabling effects from that stroke so um but they still had a stroke they still had a stroke their mris will show that there was that bright spot in the one sequence of events that correlate with the symptoms that they presented to the emergency room with all right well let's go over the um signs and symptoms just so people are reminded sounds Um, good the first one so we use the mnemonic right now called fast um 
is your face. Yep, F-A-S-T. Is your face drooping? When we look at stroke patients, we look for asymmetry, meaning one looks one side looks different than the other. So is the, the corner of the mouth more droopy? Is an eye droopier? Um, the creases on either side of our noses um, could be now, more flat. Would the person, I mean, certainly looking in a mirror, the person would see that something is unusual. Would they necessarily feel it? If, you're, if your it face depends. is drooping? Sometimes patients will say, you know, my, my face was drooping, my lip, and I felt like I had Novocaine, like I had just been to the dentist. Oh. So there are, you know, in, in not only physical weakness, but you can see um, sensory changes. You can feel your face feels different or your eye feels different. Um, another one is arm asymmetry. So is one arm weaker than the other? When strokes happen, it attacks typically one side of the brain affecting the opposite side. So if um, your left arm is weak, likely there's something going on in the right side of the brain, and we look for different symptomatology for that. But arm weakness, you know, you're writing a check and your pen falls out of your hand. It's not a small, it's not a small thing. You know, if you lose your ability to write or speak or swallow, those could be lifetime, long-time disabilities. So when you say arm weakness, it might not be the entire arm. It could be your hand. Correct. Just a simple, you know, weakness of your wrist flexor or extensor. Um, you drop your cup of coffee, which you're normally strong, and you go about your business. You're set into your routine in the day, and um, you pick up that cup of coffee, and it falls on the ground. Well, that's not probably typical for you, so be alert to that. Um, speech. Is your speech slurred? Um, patients do speak softly. Uh, patients do have differences in speaking sometimes, but if it's different to your loved one, or if you're on the phone talking to family and you know what you want to say, but you can't get the words out, or you say the words incorrectly, your, t- your brain is under attack. There is something going on that needs to be looked at more um, expediently okay. in the ER. Okay. And then the T? The T is for time. Time is brain. Our brain is under attack, and I try to tell all of the patients in clinic and when we discharge them from the hospital that Gone are the days of strokes just being a disabling event in someone's life that we can do nothing for. It's like your heart is under attack. So you need to look at the clock, see when you were last known normal per se, and then call 911. EMS are our lifelines to the emergency departments. They give us a call in to tell us what is going on with the patient, what symptoms they're seeing. And if you're from outlying hospitals, too, we have a telestroke program that Dr. Latore and Dr. Schmidt and other of our attendings can see the patients to determine where they need to be next, whether they so get, get to a hospital. Yes, ma'am. Preferably a stroke center, but get to the closest hospital. Closest hospital, get. the 911, you know, 911 closest emergency room to where you are at that given time. And then if they have a telestroke link to upstate, they're typically reaching out to us and we're getting you to us. Very good to know. Thank you so much for the information. My guest has been Stephanie Loveless. She's a nurse practitioner specializing in stroke care. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.